So we're going through more verses in the book of Luke, which I've always avoided this, this book because I don't like the way it's and this and this and this and this and this and was challenged uh, a week or so ago to, to, uh, to take a look at it with the understanding that you know the Holy Spirit is really the one that wrote this book. And perhaps I should not talk about what a poor job he's doing. Probably bad for my health, not good for the church. So I got to ask myself, why were these things linked together? So as I did that, I began to look at it in a little bit, little bit of a different light. And um, I hope to share that with you today. And in, in, in essence, uh, I, I see this as the Holy Spirit uh, clearing up just a few misunderstandings about walking with Jesus. And uh, as you know, a disciple is a learner. We are all learners. We are all disciples of Jesus Christ. If we've asked Him into our heart and asked Him to lead us, in leading us, we want to learn about Him. Uh, we are all disciples. We are not all apostles. Apostles, in the strictest sense, are people that are sent on a mission, or in the biblical sense, are people that Jesus has called and sent out on a mission. And there's really only 12 apostles. One of them was a traitor and was replaced by Matthias. Uh, although I've always said his name Mattathias, but it sounded like they were saying Matthias on the song. Uh, I know I have not learned the 12 disciples' names to where I can recite them. The kids can do that, so ask somebody in VBS to recite the 12 apostles. They can do all 13, Judas and Matthias, but I can't. I, I, I can't even remember all of your names, so I'd be in real trouble with theirs. You know? Now, the disciples clearly failed to understand Jesus' mission. They didn't get it. I like that. They did a terrible job in the beginning. I like that because I feel like I fit right in with that crowd. He'll repeat over and over and over again that he's about to die, he's about to be murdered by the religious leadership, and that he's going to rise again on the third day. They just don't grasp it. So this verse where Jesus reminds them again, he says, Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not his saying as it was hid from them, and they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him, as I say. They really, well, I could make that a little darker, couldn't I? I'll have to do that. Uh, they really did not get it, and uh, their preconceived notions, I think I talked about this last week, about the Messiah blocks their ability to understand what he's saying. In Hebrew school, they were taught about the millennium. They were taught about a king that would come and overthrow Rome. They, they, they were taught about a king that would come and take over Israel, and become a world empire and conquer the world and there'd be a one world government under the leadership of their Messiah. This is all true and it's all going to happen, just not yet. Because as somebody has once pointed out years and years ago, these prophecies are like mountaintop experiences. And sometimes you can see one mountaintop and you can see always to the next mountaintop, but you don't always see what's in between. And what's in between in these two prophecies is the church age and it was hidden in the Old Testament. They didn't know about the church. So these 2,000 years of church history that we've gone through, they had no idea in the Old Testament that that was going to happen. Although there were many references to what God was going to do, they did not get it, you know. So because of that, as he's saying these things, their mind is drifting into dangerous territory. And we can easily, when we don't understand, we can easily misunderstand and we can get sidetracked. I could, I, as a pastor, I could begin to think that God is calling me to build a mega church. And if you haven't noticed, we haven't gotten there yet. You know, I, I held no illusion that that's what God was calling me to, but I could have. 
I could have thought that he wanted to be a, be a famous cabinet maker, and I could have spent a lot of energy and time, and I spent too much energy and time cabinet making. I, I, there's a lot of side tracks and roads I could have gone down, and it's true for every one of you. There's a lot of things that are, are not bad, but they're not God's will for your life. They're not a wrong direction, they're just wrong for you. And it's easy, it's easy to get sidetracked. I'm glad that for them, as for us, that hearing God's voice and following Him are not easy. I'm glad that it was hard for them. The question is, how do we listen and how do we hear His voice with all the noise and clamor that's going on all around us? And I suppose for every one of us it's different. I actually do better mowing the lawn than I do in my study when it comes to hearing the Holy Spirit. But you have to find a place where you can get that you can hear Him speaking to you. You know, Linda often talks about how she prays when she swims. Well, I often just listen for God when I'm driving my lawn tractor. It actually drowns out all the other noise in my head, and that's good. Now, these apostles understood they were sent out to do a work in His name, but exactly what was that work, and how is it going to transpire, and how am I going to get started, and where is it going to begin? They didn't know any of this stuff. So look what they end up talking about. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be the greatest. So you know what happens to sheep when the shepherd is taking a nap. They start looking at each other. What are we going to do now? You know, and that's what they were doing. Am I going to be better than you? Or are you going to be better than me? Who's going to be greater? And I can tell you that there's a lot of time spent in churches with sheep looking at sheep trying to decide who's better than the next guy. And it's the worst possible thing we can do. There's, there's, it, maybe it's not the worst, but it's certainly not good. Now, they didn't say this to Jesus, but Jesus perceived the thought in their heart and took a child and set him in front of him and said, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever receiveth me receiveth him that sent me, for he shall be least among you, the same shall be great. So rather than striving to be the best in the flock, we should strive to be the least in the flock. Rather than striving to be served, we should be serving. Rather than insisting that we be in charge, we should be willing to support others. You know, we do this today too much, sheep looking at sheep, and we do it all the time. We look at one another to see who's doing a better job. We're preachers, we're the worst at it. When we go to conferences where other preachers are speaking and we visit other pastors' churches, we look at how nice their pews are, how big their congregation is, or how much money they've given to the cooperative program, or how many people were baptized at it's amazing. In the old days, it's not like that so much anymore, but as a brand new pastor, these, I used to get around some southern preachers, and it seems like the first thing they ask is, how many people did you baptize this week? We had a guy here that was a missionary, and he was in charge of us, of all new pastors. I, in charge is not the right word, but he was, he was there to help us, supposedly. And he, he'd always say to me, uh, Bob, his name was Bob too, Bob, did you fill up that church yet? You know, and I would always say to him, I can't remember his last name. You remember his last name? Big heavy guy. He just died about ten years ago. His name will come to me halfway through the sermon. I would always say to him, No, no, Bob, but I have got it emptied out pretty good, so you can come fill it up for me. You know, I, 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 I scared everyone away. Too often we find ourselves feeling better or worse than the person sitting next to us. 
based on what we see or what we do, we judge. But we're not supposed to do that. Because when we look at one another, we're taking our eyes off of the one who called us. And we're taking our ears off of the one who speaks to us. And we're not doing the thing that he called us to do. Because we're focusing on how well that person can sing or preach or talk or, or this or that or whatever it is. You know. We forget when we do that that we are part of a much bigger plan, a much more complex plan, so detailed that we can't possibly understand all that God has planned for us. So much so that what we need to do is do what we're called to do, and that's what Jesus said. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That's who you follow. That's who you worry about. Too often it seems like we follow the flock, I know, sometimes into self-promotion, sometimes into self-fulfillment, and sometimes into self-destruction. But often, too often in the wrong direction. We must find a way to drown out the noise around us and hear our shepherd's voice and commit ourselves to do His will. So I guess the first misunderstanding is the, the danger, the, uh, the propensity that we all have to get distracted. Don't get distracted. But what if others came along? And it's amazing how much of this speaks to me. I, I don't know how much it speaks to you, but what if someone else came along and, and was doing the same thing God called you to do? In my case, it would be, what if someone comes along and says, I want to start another church in Middlebury? Every time they do that, it causes me stress. And every time they do that, I have to set myself aside and say, that's a great idea, how can I help you? And I, I think I've always done that. I've always tried to do that. How can I help? You want to get a church started? Start meeting in our church. We'll move our hours. You tell me the hours you want to do. We'll, we'll make it possible for you to start right here. Uh, you want to reach out to the college? Tell us how we can help. But I tell you, that's not my first reaction. My first reaction is a lot more fleshly than that. It's like, uh, why don't you come help us? You want to pour $30,000 a year into the area? Why don't you come pour it into our church and work with us instead of starting in opposition to it, but that's not my, that's my first reaction. Fortunately, it's not my last. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out devils in your name. Now, they'd just been doing that, you'll recall, in Luke. They'd been out on their first mission trip. They're getting ready to go out on their second mission trip doing the same thing. And we forbade him because he followeth not us. And Jesus said, forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. You know, we live in a war, world that is at war with God. We need to find out who our allies are, and we need to side to them. In a time of great warfare, we must learn to stand together. We must learn who they are and stand with them and encourage one another. I think of John, you know, when they were talking about John the Baptist, when they were talking about Jesus, he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. That should be the cry of all of our hearts. If some younger person comes along and wants to start something in Middlebury, they must increase and we must decrease. We must be willing to encourage them. Then they were on their way to Jerusalem. So I guess that, that misunderstanding is a misunderstanding that you're the only person God has doing the job that He called you to do, and it's not true. God has paralleled other people, 
along with the calling that he has in your life to cover when you slip and you cover them when they slip. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So he was moving the direction of Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face and one had entered to a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. The Samaritans refused Jesus' permission to enter their city because he was headed for Jerusalem. And Jews and Samaritans did not get along very well at all. Outraged that these half-Jews, which is kind of funny to me, uh, well, in a sick sort of funny, the, the Samaritans, you recall, were carried away in captivity and the Assyrians who enslaved them brought in outsiders. I don't know if the word Gentiles fits, but Gentiles sort of fits. And intermixed the cultures for 200 years to where they, they literally their culture as, and their distinctiveness as Jews, as Jews broke down. And the Jews that were carried off from the south and went to Babylon for 70 years came back more pure. It's really a stupid way to say it. More Jewish than the Samaritans were. Maybe that's an okay way to say it. And the Jews that were survived the Babylonian captivity resented with great amount of resentment the Jews that survived the Assyrian captivity and vice versa. They were both very religious. They both believed in Jehovah. They both mixed idolatry with their worship. <laughs> they both were lousy, lousy followers of Yahweh, but they saw each other as the worst. Well, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou we command that fire come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? How about we just blow that city right off the face of the earth, Lord? That's, that sounds like a plan. But he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you are of. I love that sentence. There's a lot of times I've wanted to blow somebody off the face of the earth, but it's not God. That's not God. I remember coming out of a church service one time and I was kind of excited about it. And I said to my former pastor at the time, I said, how did you like that? He said, it was a wonderful service, but God wasn't in it. I thought, whoa. That's kind of what Jesus is saying to the boys. I understand your anger, but God's not in your anger. It's not God. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. There's a misunderstanding for you. And they went to another village. They went to one that would receive them. And he illustrated how we respond when we face opposition. We have a misunderstanding that when we face opposition, we should face it as the world faces it, but we should not. We, and, and this is way too big a subject to cover in this nine-point sermon that I have here, but at some point I should probably do a little study and talk, give you four or five or six principles of how to face opposition. This is not the place or time. I don't have the time to do it. But the point is, as Paul said, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. For though we walk in the flesh, Paul said, we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now in that context, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he's defending himself as an apostle against people who say they are apostles, but they are not. But they, they're able to do a better work than he does. They're building bigger churches, they have bigger crowds, they're having better success than he is, and he's struggling with defending himself, and how do I defend myself? 
And his response is, I'm not going to respond as the world responds. And the answer to that one point is, how do you defend yourself? You don't. You let God defend you. That's all of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, but that's not the subject of this message. The subject of this message is when we are faced with opposition, understand, don't misunderstand, understand that you have to allow God to fight your battles for you. Now how you get Him to do that and how that works out and how that doesn't work out, you can spend a lot of time in that. But when we're in a spiritual battle, we have to battle the Spirit's way. We are not to fight as the world fights. This is no easy lesson. Defending yourself in a world that hates God. Comparing ourselves with others or having someone else compare you with others. Getting involved in self-promotion. It's a very difficult thing that we face. Well, why can't you sing like somebody sings? Why can't you preach like somebody else preaches? We hear this all the time in the church. Fortunately, not in this church. Well, next three men come along to Jesus and they say, I want to follow you. I want to be a disciple. Now, I don't think they're asking to be apostles. I may be wrong. I don't think they are. And it came to pass as they went in a certain way, a certain man came unto him and said, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And his response, of course, is, uh, really? Jesus said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. I've told you before that when God first called me in the ministry, I, I, I looked at my pastor, Ralph Michael's life. He was a former farmer, had a great big garden. He really enjoyed life. And I looked at his garden and I thought, you know, it wouldn't be too bad. You work one day a week and you go out and work in your garden the rest of the time. It seems, it seems pretty nice, you know. Uh, but you have to understand, there's no garden promise. See, there's no woodshop promise. There's no lake where there's a boat promise. You have to be willing to follow him anywhere. You know, following me, Jesus said, means you will not be guaranteed. You're misunderstanding if you think following me guarantees the comforts that everyone else takes for granted. Homes, cars, steady income, boats, areas to hunt or fish. I can't promise you that. My biggest fear when I first surrendered was he would call me not to Africa. I thought Africa would be cool. I could go there and put roofs on missionary houses. My biggest fear is he'd call me to New York City. I'd rather be dead than go to New York City. Fortunately, he didn't call me to New York City. You know, I think those New Yorkers would have ate me up anyway. You know. yeah. Following me means you will not be guaranteed the comforts that everyone else takes for granted. Another guy comes along and he said unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. This is a harsh response, I know. Let the dead bury their dead, but go out and preach the kingdom of God. Now, I've heard all kinds of explanations of this, and I, I'm not capable of even making a reasonable explanation. I've heard people say, well, the guy's father wasn't dead yet. You know, well, that, that's certainly a different, that's a different story. His father might have been elderly. You know. Jesus' point is following me means leaving our families. And that means leaving our family obligations. I know a lot of missionaries that never made it home for their parents' funerals. Well, not a lot, but I know a few who never made it back. 
You know, in fact, that young lady that spoke here, uh, Megan Langsdorf, didn't make it back to her father's funeral. If I'm telling you correctly, I hope I am. It's a difficult thing to do, to turn your back on your family and walk away. And sometimes you suffer their condemnation. Don't misunderstand. It can be difficult following Jesus. That's all he's saying. These guys thought, as I thought, hey, what? how hard is it to work one day a week? You know, uh, A lot of people think that. But following Jesus isn't always that easy. That's the point. In fact, I think it's safe to say following Jesus is never easy. You have to count the cost before you make a commitment that says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And another said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go and bid them farewell which are at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I, I like this passage and don't like this passage that we're doing today because it actually bites me every time I read a verse. Every, every, I've failed at every verse I've read you so far today. Uh, and I've spent an enormous amount of time looking back. And that says I'm not fit for the kingdom, which is probably good because I'm a sinner saved by grace. And grace is going to get me in heaven and not my fitness for the kingdom. In fact, it is my unfitness, it is our unfitness that qualifies us for a Savior. Our recognition of our unfitness qualifies us for a Savior. But still it bites a little to know how much time I've wasted looking back instead of looking ahead. And how easy it is to look back and feel good or feel bad. But when you look forward, it's hard to see what's coming. It's hard to plan ahead. Jesus said, following me means the kingdom comes first. Always. We must not focus on all that we left behind, the things we want, our hopes for a future. We must focus on His calling in our life. And then He sends them on their second mission trip, 70 this time. And we're not going through all these verses, don't panic. We've already been through them once. I'm not going to do it again. This is the second mission trip. We spent a lot of time identifying things about the second mission trip that probably applied to the first mission trip, so I'm not going to do that. But I am going to try to get you to his conclusion on this second mission trip. After these things, the Lord appointed 70, other 70 also and sent them two, two by two before his face into every city and place, whether he himself would come. So although he steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem, I want you to see in that verse that these guys are kind of pre-planning the visit. So he sent them two by two in each of the cities he plans to visit along the way, 35 different cities that he plans to stop in, see? And he's preparing the way. They're preparing the way for him. I said that backwards. They are preparing the way for him. Therefore he said unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers unto his harvest. Now, there's a number of points I want to just read to you. We've been over them already. And it's in, it's in the following verses, and I didn't put them up on the PowerPoint. So if you have your Bible open and you want to follow, you can. The point is, beware that these missions are dangerous. Take no money. Take no extra shoes. Avoid conversations that delay you. And stay only in one house in each city at a time. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get robbed. This isn't a show of how well you can dress. Just go as an ordinary person. That's verses 3 and 4. Verse 5 and 6. Look for the Son of Peace. Although some translations read a Son of Peace. 
And that means someone in the town that is open and welcoming and will accept you sharing the gospel with them and willing to show you the hospitality that you deserve. It's a common expression in Jesus' day, not so common in our day. It's a head of the household that's inclined to peace and hospitality. Verses 8 and 9. Eat their food. Sound like my mother. Eat what's put in front of you. But I don't like asparagus, Mom. Doesn't matter. They feed it to you, eat it. Heal their sick. Tell them God's kingdom has come. God's kingdom has come because God's king has come. Prepare them for what's coming. You know, we've got a world that's not prepared for what's coming. We have a lot of people complaining about gas prices and inflation, but we're not prepared for what's coming. Because what's coming is God is coming in judgment of this earth. The world is not prepared for that. Verses 10 and 11, if they refuse to receive you, leave that city. If no one in there wants to deal with you, leave the city. Wipe even the dust of that city from off of your sandals, which is a common Jewish habit. So that when judgment falls on that city, you will have no part in it. That's the point. Like Pilate when he consented to let them crucify Jesus. He washed his hands. I want no part in this crucifixion. Verses 12 and 14 is a whole nother sermon more tolerable in Sodom and Tyre and Sidon than for those whose cities in judgment. It would be more tolerable for Sodom than these cities that tell you to get out of town. That's an interesting statement and plays a lot to do with Calvinist, Arminian debates and theology, and it's not something I want to wade into today. Someday we're feeling pretty spiffy. We may jump into it, but not today. Finally, he said, understand this. He that hears you hears me. And this is the message for us. In all our failings, in all our struggles, in all our misunderstandings, as we go out, trying to hear the shepherd's voice in our ear, trying to obey as disciples, learning what it means to follow Jesus our whole lives. As we struggle around and fumble around, just as they do, and I thank God that the Bible is honest about their failings. Understand that he that hears you, hears me. When you speak to someone, that's God speaking to them. It's a pretty awesome responsibility when you think about it. Pretty awesome challenge. Pretty dreadful in a way. To think that your job is that important. That when people hear you share the gospel with them, they are literally hearing the voice of God. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despises him that sent me. You are my voice to those cities. Where do you live? You live in Middlebury, you are God's voice to Middlebury. You can't keep that voice silent. And yet you know, 80, 90% of the people you talk to, you'll bring them condemnation when you tell them God's word. If they reject you, they're rejecting me. And if they reject me, they're also rejecting the one who sent me. Don't take it personally. A lot of common misunderstandings there. You think, well, if I could do a better job of presenting the gospel, it doesn't matter. Well, if I had better arguments, you can't argue someone into the kingdom. Whatever you're saying, God is speaking to their hearts. 
And it's God that they are rejecting and not you. Don't take it personally. Paul summed up uh, 2 Corinthians 5 with these words. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself that way. But in the town where you live and in the people with whom you work and on the job where you work and the people that you talk to, you are his ambassador, an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And your words are his words. Take your position seriously. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, for this opportunity to look at your word. My prayer is that only what is of you will stick in our hearts and the rest will just drift away like floss. Help us, Father. We pray safe travel for the Currens as they go out west again. We pray for the kids that are going to be down in, I think, Massachusetts. Oh, that's probably Connecticut. Which is it, Elizabeth? Massachusetts. No, it is Massachusetts. Got the state right for a change. Good. Going to be in Massachusetts with their grandmother. Help them to have a nice visit. Watch over our ladies in our church that are pregnant. Help them to be safe. Father, keep us safe as we travel. Watch over her jobs, but more than anything, help us to hear the voice of your Son and follow Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.